Hello and welcome to this episode of our Fireside series. My name is Aoife Zureb, I'm a senior associate in our Melbourne Disputes Group and I'm joined by my colleague Alan Mitchell, a partner in our Melbourne Disputes Group. Today, Alan and I will speak about two important features of legal costs in class action proceedings. I will speak about group cost orders, a new addition to the Victorian class action landscape, and Alan will speak about security for costs, which is a much more established feature of the landscape, but one which may be impacted by the availability of group cost orders in Victoria. There is lots to discuss and various developments in both areas that we will delve into in a little bit more detail throughout the course of this discussion. So turning to group cost orders, what are they? Well, they are also known as contingency fees, which is a term that we may be a little bit more familiar with and effectively involve a plaintiff law firm taking a cut of the class action proceeds. I will spend a couple of minutes speaking about how these orders interact with the reform landscape before moving to some practical issues and then handing over to Alan, who, as I said, will speak about security for costs. The Productivity Commission in 2014 and the Victorian Law Reform Commission and the Australian Law Reform Commission in 2018 all recommended or supported lifting the ban on percentage-based fees, provided that there were certain safeguards in place. More recently, the Parliamentary Joint Committee devoted a significant portion of its report to this issue, following the receipt of various submissions from numerous funders and lawyers. The Parliamentary Joint Committee ultimately recommended that the Australian government should review the feasibility of imposing a, a financial services regulatory regime that is similar to that that has recently been imposed on third-party litigation funders. Since July 2020, it is lawful for a plaintiff law firm to charge for legal services on a contingency fee arrangement in class actions and only in the state of Victoria. It's done by way of an interlocutory application at the earliest practical time after the originating pleadings are filed. The order applies to all legal services, including all services provided by the law firm, security for costs if they've been ordered, disbursements and indemnities for adverse costs. The relevant test is whether the court is satisfied that it's appropriate or necessary to ensure that justice is done in the proceedings. Now, this is a test that we're all familiar with and one that has received much judicial consideration and determination in other contexts in recent times. It's going to be really interesting to see how the court grapples with this test in this particular context. A number of applications for group cost orders have now been foreshadowed and we've seen Justice Nichols be quite prescriptive in terms of the material that Her Honour would like to see in support of any application. Her Honour has outlined a two-stage process for submissions. Firstly, submissions regarding the principles under the new Section 33ZDA of the Supreme Court Act. And secondly, submissions about what expert evidence they seek to rely on during the hearing. Her Honour has also urged the parties to agree on a contradictor to be appointed and confirmed that the plaintiffs, from a sequencing perspective, the plaintiffs will first make their submissions, followed by the contradictor and then the defendant. Justice Nichols has also cautioned against a reliance on evidence or opinions from general economists. And the reason for this is that um, there, the hearing will typically last two to three days and there will not be scope for detailed cross-examination or expert um, conferrals like we would see in a trial, for example. So really an urging from the court for that expert evidence in support of any application to be robust, discreet and relevant to the issues that the court will be grappling with. If a group cost order is made, the law practice representing the representative plaintiff 
is liable to cover any cost payable to the defendant. And it's important to note that the Supreme Court will have the flexibility to amend that group cost order during the course of the proceedings, including altering the percentage set in the order. Now, in terms of how these orders will impact the third party litigation funding market, there are mixed views on this. And there are also view, mixed views on whether or not they will enhance access to justice. On the one hand, many argue that the introduction of contingency fees will lead to an increase in smaller, lower value claims where third party funders have been reluctant or reticent to invest in the past. On the other hand, others argue that it doesn't really enhance the position any further than a no win, no fee arrangement, which plaintiff law firms have um, been able to offer in the past. We've also seen some scepticism from the Parliamentary Joint Committee um, where the concern is effectively that the concentration of benefits that would flow from a contingency fee arrangement will be very focused on a, a relatively small group of law firms who have the capital adequacy to, um, to carry these orders on their books. There are also conflicting views on whether contingency fees impact financial outcomes for class members. One of the key purposes for the introduction of contingency fees was to increase group member recovery. Some plaintiff law firms have argued that the availability of contingency fees places downward pressure on litigation funding commissions. And given the prospect of contingency fees, there is the prospect of higher returns to class members. In their submission to the Parliamentary Joint Committee, Morris Blackburn included some analysis, which was to the effect that if a 25% contingency fee arrangement were in place, for 16 funded cases that Morris Blackburn settled between 2006 and 2018, group member recovery would have been on an average of 75% compared with the 60% that was actually returned to in the funded class actions. Now, whether or not the introduction of this amendment has that effect of downward pressure will, I think, depend on the circumstances of each case. And it's important to flag, of course, that the Victorian Supreme Court has ultimate supervisory power here and full discretion um, over any contingency fee and is ultimately required to determine the settlement outcomes that are fair and reasonable for group members. Um, so in terms of how there's also an important question as to how these group cost orders interact with security for cost orders and this has cropped up in a couple of class actions in recent times. So with that I'll hand over to Alan who will speak about security for costs. Thanks, Aoife. I'm going to talk about security for costs in the context of group cost actions. Um, I'm going to look firstly at the general rules for security for costs, then look at the effect of this new process, the form that the security might take, look at the timing of when um, an application should be made and the sort of complications that can arise when they are made, and also look at the possible quantum that might apply to the security when it is given. Looking firstly then at the general rule as to security for costs, the rationale for it is if there's a reason to believe that the plaintiff corporation will be unable to pay the costs of the defendant if it's successful in its defence, then the court can require the plaintiff to provide security for those costs and stay all proceedings until security is given. Now, the jurisdictional basis in Victoria um, is twofold. Firstly, under section 33ZF, which allows the court to make any order it thinks appropriate or necessary to ensure that justice is done in the proceeding. And then secondly, there is the inherent jurisdiction of the court. In past class actions, litigation funders 
have usually provided security for costs. Now, where that litigation funder has a strong balance sheet, it's often been sufficient for security to be provided by way of an undertaking by the funder to the court to abide by any adverse cost order. Where there's been doubt as to the financial strength of the funder, on occasions that funder has had to provide a bank guarantee. It's also worth noting that security for costs is usually provided in progressive tranches as the proceeding progresses. I'll look now at the effect of group cost proceedings on security for costs. They raise a new spectre as in these arrangements, there will be no litigation funder in place. Rather, the plaintiff law firm is effectively both the funder of the action and lawyers for the representative plaintiff. This brings it with it the potential benefit to the plaintiff law firm of receiving not only legal fees in the event of a successful outcome to the proceeding, but also a fee akin to the commission that had previously been charged by the funder. With that benefit, though, does come burden, and with it the prospect that the law firm will itself have to provide security for costs. Now, the plaintiff law firm will invariably indemnify the representative plaintiff for any adverse cost order, but that's cold comfort to a defendant corporation as it will have no direct right of action against the law firm if security were not to be provided and if there's doubt as to the financial capacity of the plaintiff law firm to be able to satisfy its indemnification obligation to the representative plaintiff. Visibility as to the financial capacity of the plaintiff law firm is important. Some plaintiff law firms are themselves listed, such as Slater and Gordon and Shine Lawyers. So there's some visibility of their financial capacity through the accounts that they are required to lodge. However, some other law firms are private companies and there's not then visibility of their accounts unless they be large private companies when there's then also a requirement to lodge financial accounts. An avenue that plaintiffs and plaintiff law firms might look towards is the availability of adverse cost insurance. Now this is insurance that um, enables the plaintiff to meet any adverse cost order. The premiums for that type of insurance though are quite expensive and it would constitute a further expense for a plaintiff law firm which is self-funding an action. Further, any insurer which might be approached to provide that type of insurance would need to be comfortable with the merits of the claim before it would provide the insurance. And that will be challenging from the outset of an action and as the matter progresses, as it's not possible for the plaintiff law firm to provide information about the claim that might emerge from documents discovered by the defendant corporation given that the confidentiality undertakings which attach to a plaintiff law firm's receipt of discovered documents from a defendant. Also, adverse cost insurance will not suffice as a basis for security for costs. There is a 2017 federal court decision, Peterson and the Bank of Queensland, which held that such insurance could not be proffered by a plaintiff by way of security as the defendant corporation would not itself be insured under the policy and the defendant would have no contractual right upon which it could rely to force the plaintiff to enforce the terms of the insurance policy. I'm going to speak now about the timing 
of applying for security for costs. Now, a party that seeks security for costs cannot delay in making the application, otherwise it might be denied that security. That timing of applying can be complicated though, if there are multiple class actions brought against the company, and there is then a contest as to which of those multiple claims is to proceed, or whether the multiple claims be consolidated and the several proceedings continue in a consolidated form. Now, in those circumstances, in this Victorian environment of group cost orders, there have been some recent cases where the court has accepted that there should first be a determination of that multiplicity issue before an application for security for costs is brought, but that such security, if it be granted, can be backdated. Now, there is another dimension too about multiple proceedings continuing on a consolidated basis. If that be so, the two law firms will likely contend that any security for costs should be split 50-50 as between each party. However, that course would represent a departure from the usual course where providers of security are jointly and severally liable. And I think defendant companies can be expected to insist on joint and several liability as providers of security. If joint and several liability for security for costs is awarded against plaintiff law firms, that would not be welcomed by them as one firm could then be exposed to the others, other firm's financial frailty. Another thing to be aware of in respect of timing for security for costs application is a recent decision by the Victorian Supreme Court in the G8 class action, which held that a defendant company was entitled to apply for security prior to the hearing of a costs application by a plaintiff. Now, I'll lastly deal with quantum of what that security for costs might be. As this process of group cost orders is very new, there's no guidance that be, can be gained from any existing authorities. A possible analogue to look to though is the pre-trial settlements that have been approved by courts in the past, which have involved plaintiff law firms um, being paid millions of dollars out of the settlement proceeds. Now, that might represent a conservative benchmark for the calculation of the quantum for security costs that might be proffered by plaintiff law firms, given that the lion's share of work in a securities class action will be done by lawyers for the defendant company, as they will have to do virtually all of the discovery that's given in the matter and virtually all of the lay witness evidence. So the, the cost of the defendant lawyers will invariably be much higher than those of the plaintiff law firm. And also it's to be taken uh, into account that in those past approval of pre-trial settlement proceeds um, and payments to the plaintiff law firms, there's not been need to take account of trial costs, which would be occasioned if you get a situation where the matter proceeds and there are adverse cost orders at the conclusion of trial. So this is, I think, a very significant financial impost that plaintiff law firms may need to assume. Thanks, Alan. There's obviously lots of interesting things happening in this space, and we look forward to continuing this conversation with our clients in the next 12 months or so as we see how all of these various issues evolve. Thank you for your time today, and we look forward to continuing the conversation.
You have been listening to a podcast brought to you by Herbert Smith Freehills. For more episodes, please go to our channel on iTunes or SoundCloud and visit our website herbertsmithfreehills.com for more insights relevant to your business.